2: You're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness.
0: This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions.
3: Tonight, in sleep you'll know, whatever that means, it's the season four finale, which means it is part one of the Gulf Breeze UFO sightings in Gulf Breeze, Florida all that and more on small town secrets Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Season 4 Finality, also known as Episode uh, 4.09, the first part, not the second part. Yes, I accidentally released an image on Twitter that said that this was part two. No, it's part one of Gulf Breeze, Florida. Part two will be the next episode, but let's not get ahead of ourselves, and we'll concentrate on this episode for tonight, as we probably should. Um, Just a few notes ones that probably won't matter to anyone but me, but, uh, the office, the studio has a door now, uh, for, not everyone knows this, I know I've talked about it before, and I know I've put it on Twitter, uh, didn't have a door, so this office used to be a porch, and then it was enclosed, and, like, the big heavy, like, storm door was taken off, and just became a doorway, but, so, but I usually, since then I've been using, like, just a moving blanket that I've folded in half, and then Hung on the door, which is still amusing, by the way, but that combined with the door now makes it a very quiet, nice, quiet recording space. Um, it might actually be quiet enough that I may not have to record super late at night on the weekends anymore, and I can record while everyone else is putts around the house and uh, not disturb anybody. So we'll see how that goes down the road. Won't, like I said, won't affect anybody but me, but hopefully, maybe the show, the show sounds a little bit different. Maybe a little deader, not as quite as reverby as it normally does, but we'll see. Uh, I'm digging it, and uh, yeah, a door. Very exciting. But like I said, this is Golf Breeze Part One, and I want to lay out before we get into it too much how this is how this is going to go, how this season four finale is going to go. Um, we're going to talk tonight. We're just I'm just going to tell you the story from the beginning, from the first sighting to the end of the sightings. Next episode, part two, is when I'm going to get into uh, the analysis of the photos with Bruce McAbee, the Bud Hopkins stuff a little bit, the abduction stuff a teeny little bit. And uh, we're going to talk about the aftermath of it a little bit. Was it a hoax? Was it not a hoax? You know, uh, theories and ideas about it all. And then we're going to finish up talking about the very odd story of the Doomsday Six, or the Gulf Breeze Six, which were a group of AWOL uh, agents, Army, from the Army, from the Marines, or something that had heard about the Gulf Breeze sightings and had decided that it was the end of the world and rented a van and uh, hijinks ensued. So we'll get all of that episode 4.10. If you are on the Patreon, we're going to be spending the next couple of episodes of Backroads, the Patreon-exclusive podcast, talking about... Ed, who is the main uh, character in this tale, if you will, and his wife, Frances, talking about their abduction experiences. They wrote two books. Well, maybe a third book, but I can't, I wasn't able to find too much on it. They wrote two books that everyone knows about. That's better. They wrote The Golf Breeze Sightings, which is where a lot of this information tonight and a lot of it next week or next episode is going to come from. And They also wrote another book called Abdu- uh, UFO Abductions in Golf Breeze, which... I'm going to go through, and uh, we're going to talk about that on the Backroads podcast. So if you have been waiting or you don't know about the Patreon, uh, the next two episodes I think are going to be pretty juicy, and uh, they are the perfect reason to sign up for Patreon. So a couple ways you can check it out, you can go to patreon.com slash stscast, or you can go to stscast.com, click on support, and there is a link. That will take you to the Patreon site. There are three levels of support: a one dollar level, a three dollar level, and a five dollar level. Uh, you can get stickers, you can get buttons, music scores the show, and of course uh, the Backroads podcast and a bunch of other stuff that I just decide to post and do. So, so if that interests you, then uh, check it out and maybe maybe help support the show a little bit with it. But I, I won't I won't drill it into your head anymore. Let's uh, move on. Oh, one more thing. This is a special episode. Why? Well, not because it's the season finale. That happens all the time. It's not even like an important season finale, like 40 episodes, well, 39. No, it is a special episode because we're doing Golf Breeze, Florida. Golf Breeze, Florida. Um, and the reason why that is special is we have I have now officially done, once this episode is out, every town that I mention... In the opening theme music, will I replace those names now that we've done all 10? No, probably not, for I am far too lazy to go back and do that. Actually, it was a happy accident. I just ended up doing it for the promo, like the coming soon promo of the show, and just did it because I thought the promo needed a little something, and liked it enough that I went back and threw it into the main theme. But we've done all 10 towns. 10 towns? I don't even know if we mentioned 10 towns. However many towns... I kind of whisper in the beginning intro theme, we've done them all. So I think that's enough intro for right now. Let's just get in, uh, to our first part of part one of golf breeze, Florida.
0: Hello friends. My name is Michael Patrick and I'm the host of the monsters and friends podcast each week. My Bigfoot friend Barry and I fire up our trusty Winnebago, and we travel the United States in search of cryptids, legends, and lore. However, we're not looking for any old cryptid, legend, and lore. We want to introduce you to some of the monsters of the world that don't get the same spotlight as Barry's cousin, Bigfoot. Did you know that in Ireland, there's an 8-foot murderous otter? Or in the Mongolian desert there's a worm that can kill you instantly. Come with Barry and I each and every week as we travel the United States in search of interesting monsters and stories. Once we find them, we usually find a good spot to camp, sit around the campfire, sip on warm cider, and chat about life, or sometimes butterflies. We'd love for you to join us each and every week and learn about the amazing things and stories that we discover. You can find the Monsters and Friends podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening and we'll chat again real soon.
3: The little town of Gulf Breeze rests in the far north of Florida in the Panhandle. The town is 7,000 or so is a quite affluent community. Today, most people stop by Gulf Breeze to enjoy the Gulf Breeze Zoo. But, for four months or so at the end of 1987 and into the beginning of 1988, UFO fever gripped the whole town. Ed Walters, a well-respected member of the community and contractor, started seeing UFOs. And not only seeing, but taking pictures of them. 38 pictures of them, to be exact. It began on Veterans Day, November 11th, 1987. Ed's wife, Frances, had driven to the store to pick up a few last minute things for dinner. Ed was in his office at the front of the house working on an oncoming project. As he was working, he noticed something in the air peering out from the pine tree in front of his house. At first, it didn't strike Ed as odd. The Pensacola Naval Base was just across the bay. The more it hung around, the more curious Ed became. He decided to go out and have a better look. What he saw when he stepped outside was no aircraft he was familiar with. It was a grayish-blue, saucer-shaped craft that seemed to give off a glow in the evening sky. Ed's first thought was he should go inside and call the police. But would they believe him? Instead, he raced back inside and grabbed his Polaroid camera. He ventured further out into the street and snapped off five pictures. It was then that he was encompassed in a blue beam of energy from the craft. He was lifted off the ground by a couple of feet and frozen in terror. A male voice tried to tell him to calm down, and seconds later a female voice joined in. Ed did not. He continued to struggle. Then they began beaming images of dogs into his head. Perhaps in an attempt to calm him, this didn't work. Ed's stubbornness paid off, and the beam disappeared, and he landed on the pavement. The UFO was gone. The only thing left was a bewildered Ed Walters and a few Polaroid pictures scattered about the ground. Francis came back as he was gathering them up. He told her what had happened, and together they took a look at the pictures. And I guess I should stop here and... Uh, explain to everyone I have to do this now because it's old and I'm old and I know what they are but I know no one else does Uh, what Polaroid photographs are if you don't know Uh, they were a type of photograph that you could take a picture of and then they would be developed inside the camera Um, then old models, old, old models like what Ed had here would spit out like Uh, the film with like a cover on it that had all the chemicals in it so after it was done developing you had to peel that cover off and then your photograph was underneath it later and even later in the story polaroids evolved to where you could hit a button it would take the picture it would spit the polaroid out instantaneously and uh, you could sit there and watch it before your eyes it was magic to us But that's what we're dealing with. We're not dealing with digital photography. We're not dealing with, like, a 35mm camera. Uh, We get into one a little bit later, but... And that's always kind of been a point with this, is that he took almost all of these pictures with a a Polaroid of some sort. This older one that he started out with, and then later he got a newer one. And uh, those have always been known to be harder to fake. Because you get the picture like that. In most cases and so it's not impossible but it's very very hard but i just wanted to give that little side note get out of the way that's what a polaroid is but let's move on ed and his wife wondered for close to a week what to do with the pictures they didn't want the family namely their two children to suffer the consequences of what might come of these photos and ed's claims he also didn't want to be like a laughing stock you know he was well respected among the town they decided to give them to the local newspaper anonymously. Ed wrote a letter from a friend, in quotation marks, calling himself Mr. X. Yes, Mr. X. He then stopped at the Gulf Breeze Sentinel to talk with its editor at the time, Dwayne Cook. Cook was intrigued by the photos and the story. Ed had left out the whole botched abduction angle. Uh, He only told him about, like, oh, I saw this, you know, uh, my my, my friend, my friend saw this thing, and snapped these pictures of it uh, in our front lawn. But it was my friend that did it, and uh, he took these pictures. Uh, These first five photos were published in the Sentinel on the 17th. November 20th was homecoming night. Ed and Francis had volunteered to help with that night's festivities. The high school was very close to the house. That night, before leaving for the school, Ed got what he would call the hum for the first time. He quickly identified it as the same hum he had heard while he was caught in the blue beam at that first encounter. The hum grew more and more intense, but he was the only one that could hear it. As the evening wore on, it came and went. Francis, even though she was concerned, eventually had to leave for the high school. Ed's kids had also gone. He was home alone. That's when the hum turned into voices he followed the voices outside camera in hand outside he saw a craft coming down from the sky as it lowered a voice a male voice told him to calm down and step forward ed did not comply he raised his camera the voice replied don't do that and then a female voice said please don't do that then strangely A third voice spoke up in Spanish. Los fotos son prohibito, the voice said. The female voice then continued. You can't expose them. They won't hurt you. Just a few tests. That's all. Once again, Ed refused and snapped another picture. The UFO came closer and became much brighter. They asked him to come aboard. Ed would not and asked what gave them the right to do what they were doing. The male voice replied, We have the right. Ed took another picture. They once again started flashing images in Ed's head, this time of naked women. Uh, And probably some way to uh, subdue him, many would claim. Uh, But this, of course, didn't work. We will come for you, the male voice replied. As the UFO flew off, Ed took another picture. So, they talk rather cryptically like this when they do talk to him. You know, like... The whole we have the right thing, what do they mean by that? Are they talking about back in the 40s when allegedly Eisenhower and the government signed this treaty to, with uh, the aliens to allow them to abduct so many people a year and all of this? Or are they talking about something completely different that we just can't quite understand? And then when she says, you know, we, you can't expose them, they won't hurt you. Like, who is who is this other voice talking about? Like, the more I get into this and the more I, like, look about what the aliens supposedly said, it's almost as like there's a group of aliens trying to nab him and there's a group of aliens trying to protect him, you know? Then I almost wonder, like, is, is the other female voice talking about, like, don't expose the film, just throw it away? Yeah, you know, I don't know, but the very cryptic stuff, we'll get into some more things that they say later on. By the end of November... Word about UFOs was getting around Golf Bree, and it wasn't just Ed Walters who had seen things. On November 11th, at around 2 p.m., hours before Ed's sighting, a Mrs. Zamet was alerted by her dog to a craft in the sky, also with a blue beam coming from it. Jeff Thompson reported seeing a UFO being chased by two fighter jets that same morning. An hour after Ed's first encounter, Linda Lube saw a UFO while barbecuing. And in the next episode we might get into some more uh, reports from other people, I'm not sure yet. Frances would see the UFO herself for the first time on the night of December 2nd. But it's what happened later that night that is truly strange. At around 3.30 in the morning, Crystal, the Walters dog, barked once. This woke Ed up. Crystal, a spitz, didn't just bark once. By this time, Ed had taken to keeping a thirty eight pistol by his bed. He grabbed it and got out of bed. He opened the blinds to the glass doors that led from the bedroom to the backyard. On the other side of those glass doors was a small, four-foot bean with large black eyes. It seemed to be dressed in armor and was wearing a helmet. It was holding a silver rod in its hands. Scared, Ed jumped back and crawled away from the window. By this point, Francis was also on the floor, hiding behind the bed. Ed pointed his gun at the bean, but whatever happened, the bean didn't budge. It didn't seem scared, just curious. It did not react to anything. It just watched them. Then, it just started to walk away, making its way across the backyard. Ed got up and found the doors locked. He had to put the gun and the camera down in order to unlock them. He then raced outside to try and catch the creature, only to be faced with another UFO. So, like, he, when he unlocked the door, he just ran out there and he didn't, he didn't have the camera or the gun with him. Once again, the blue beam shot down. It got Ed by the leg and attempted to lift him up, but was unsuccessful. It gave up and started pulling back from the house into the empty lot, behind Ed's property. He raced back inside and grabbed the camera. He took picture number 11, and in the photo, a blue beam can be seen shooting down into the field, perhaps picking up the tiny beam. Reinforcements would arrive on December 4th. Buffon had arrived. However, they didn't really announce their arrival. They just sorta showed up while Ed was away. Frances watched as three strange men poked around the street and even in her front yard, taking measurements and photos. They were trying to suss out which house the first five photos had been taken from. They would later go on and properly meet up with Ed. Don Ware, Charles Flanagan, and Gary Watson were indeed from MUFON, and they had volunteered to come to Florida and investigate Ed's sighting. Ed's next sighting was short, but had two important elements. This was the first time he had seen a much larger craft. He was in awe of the largest ship, but still managed to get a photo. He also heard the voices again. This time, they addressed him as Zehas. He didn't know what it meant, but it sounded like some sort of pet name or a nickname for him. Later, he would kind of come to the conclusion while talking with somebody else, that uh, Zehas was very similar to the Spanish word for eyebrows. And Ed was kind of known for having uh, a bushy eyebrows. So as far as he could tell, that was the best answer that anyone had come up with for the name, or it might just have been an alien name. Who knows, really? The next sighting on December 16th left some evidence behind. According to Ed, the craft was low and close to the house. Suddenly, it started to smoke and burbled out some sort of clear liquid. Ed was able to retrieve a container and get some of that liquid. It looked just like water, but seemed to boil for a long time after it was retrieved, and I will get more into it on the second episode. We'll talk about the analysis of this strange liquid. On December 28th, ed was able to capture video of one of the craft in many cases the arrival of one of these ufos would be announced by the hum this happened so much that ed was beginning to wonder if somehow he had gotten the hum after that first incident on veterans day and he was not supposed to have it were these beings somehow trying to retrieve it all of that being said the sighting was different there was no hum just a bright flash of light that seemed to light up the entire bedroom. Frances mentioned calling the police, and after she said that, the craft was suddenly gone, only to come back minutes later. It was almost as if the beans inside the ship were trying to show them that if they brought the police into this, that they could just blink out at a moment's notice. Ed went for his camera, but found it had no more film. Instead, he grabbed his video camera and loaded a fresh battery and a new cassette. He captured 1 minute and 38 seconds of video of the UFO hovering over the backyard and then slowly backing away and then blinking out of sight. Uh, But here's the thing, Uh, I've never seen this video, I don't think a lot of people have seen this video. It's not the first time that video is going to show up. Um, I would love to find it, but I just don't think it's on the internet. it would be, it would be way better than, than the photos. Video evidence, I think, is always a little bit more compelling than photographic evidence. But if anyone knows where I can get a hold of it, uh, I would like to see it. I know there was a documentary. I don't bring it up in this episode, you know, my notes, but they, had, they, he had agreed to do this docu, local documentary for a long time, but I don't even think it ever came to fruition. So I don't know. Maybe that's where I should start. See if I could dig up that somewhere. But maybe somebody knows. Somebody out there knows. After getting the videotape, he didn't have another encounter for almost 14 days. Not until January 12th of 1988, so now we're into the next year. This time, Ed was not at home, was at a build site. He had returned there in the evening to double check on a few things. The sun was setting on his way back down County Road 191B between Walton, Florida, and Gulf Breeze, Florida. As he drove around a curve, He was hit with another bright light this light was much like the blue beam only white and much more intense ed tried to keep focus on the road but found it difficult with the light then his arms and hands went completely numb he found it difficult to drive with numb hands he had to keep an eye on what they were doing and keep an eye on what the truck was doing at the same time ed attempted to make a u-turn so he could escape in the other direction That didn't work and he ended up on the side of the road with the now ominous UFO hovering over the road in front of him some 200 feet in front of him. Ed got out of the truck and went for the shotgun he kept behind the seat. He was able to grab the gun if he kept his eyes on what his hands were doing. Remember, he still has numb hands. After grabbing the shotgun, he went back for his trusty camera and was able to shoot photo 19. And this is, I think, probably... The most famous photo. Uh, it's the photo I use for the episode tile. I think I'll have it in the show notes too. But it's the. I mean, you'll find it if you do a, it's a very simple Google search. It is a picture of the craft on a you know, just barren country road, just not even that far off the ground. It's a very very nice picture of UFO. He tried to take another, but noticed the craft coming closer to him and to the truck. Ed with his camera in one hand and shotgun in the other, scrambled underneath the truck. It was at this moment that he heard the voice. You are in danger. We will not harm you. Come forward, it said. So see, once again, they're saying, you're not in danger. We're not the danger. Come here. Like, it's almost like we're trying to save you from whatever these other things are. Ed didn't budge from his position from underneath the truck. It was at this moment that five blue beams, one, After the other, shot onto the road, each one transplanting a small creature. They were very much like the bean he and Francis had seen that night in their backyard. They all had silver rods in their hands and slowly started marching towards him. With every bit of energy he could muster, Ed made a break for the truck cab, started it, backed it up across the road, and hauled ass in the other direction. And uh, he didn't get a picture of those, but... Man, if he would have, it would have been quite the awesome picture, I think. But that is kind of where things start to get uh, a little hairy. And I think it's probably the last time that Ed is also kind of by himself in a way. Every other kind of encounter, for the most part, from here on out, he's with somebody. So Ed is not the only person that has seen this stuff. By this time, the three men from MUFON had started surveillance on Ed's home. Ed and the men had even started communicating by walkie-talkie. On the night of January 21st, the hum returned. At around 10.30 that night, Ed was walking down to a nearby parking lot where MUFON had set up shop to give Bob Reed something he wanted to give Don Weir. And I'm not sure what that is. I'm assuming it was the substance from the the UFO the clear stuff, but I'm not I'm not 100% sure about that But as he was walking the hum began he told Bob to get his camera ready and the UFO was on its way Sadly Bob would never see or capture the UFO on his video camera at the time the UFO showed itself Bob had become confused by a low-flying plane Bob insisted that this is what Ed was seeing but Ed was looking off in a different direction as Bob watched the plane from another. So basically what happened is Ed sees the UFO, I think from like the North or something, and Bob sees this plane coming in from the South and Bob's just looking in the wrong direction the entire time. Sadly to say it was a disappointing encounter. The next sighting on January 24th is very interesting because he was with newspaper editor Dwayne Cook. That night, Cook was actually going to drive out to a secluded field to do some UFO watching of his own, but he was interrupted by Ed Walters showing up to the paper. The hum was back, and Ed desperately needed someone else to try and capture it with him, but all the MUFON guys were MIA. Because of this, Ed thought Cook could uh, be his next prime candidate. Dwayne was game, and together they went UFO hunting. Ed was somewhat able to use the hum, as a sort of tracking device. He could feel a pull toward the UFO. As he drove, the hum increased, and once again, he heard a voice. In sleep, you know, was all it said. Ed continued to drive, and the hum continued to increase. Ed started to feel like his face and eyes were being pulled in different directions. He repeatedly asked Dwayne if his face and eyes were moving, to which DeWayne assured him, he was fine. They eventually pulled off the highway and onto a side road. Ed stopped the truck and got out, ready to confront the UFO. He had a feeling they wanted the hum back, and he was ready to give it back to them. And Dwayne started filming uh, with the video camera, with Ed's video camera. Dwayne didn't uh, catch the UFO on video. He had stopped filming by the time it uh, showed up, sadly. But he did get—he did get Ed, you know. Running out to the road, yelling at the thing, and all that stuff. Once again, video I have never seen and can't track down. But even though there wasn't anything on video, Ed was able to snap another picture. Dwayne Cook saw it all. He saw Ed take the picture, and even he himself pulled the film from the Polaroid. So he, pe- you know, he peeled the thing back, and he was the one that actually did it. So we had like a material witness, if you will, not only someone who saw it, but someone who was, you know, there and experienced it and helped out a little bit. And so the whole uh, in sleep, you know, thing—the best that Ed and francine they talked about it a couple of times—could figure was Ed, as far as back as he can kind of remember, ever since he was an adult, was able to uh, fall asleep very quickly by imagining a dark cloud enveloping his body from his toes up to his head, and then he'd fall asleep. Which really, I mean, it's a relaxation technique. It sounds very meditative. Um, So I think he was just kind of doing meditative practices without realizing it. But then, other than than that, he found that he could uh, conjure what he called sleep words if he had like an issue that he had to work out or a problem he had to solve right before he went off to sleep he could he could uh, say a couple of sleep words about his issue, his problem and in the next morning he would have dreamt a, a solution to it and he kind of came to the conclusion that he could use this technique somehow to uh, gleam answers from these encounters and what possibly might have been happening that they weren't aware of we'll get into that some more probably in the more abduction stuff but that's what the whole in sleep you know means at least as far as ed and francis could work out francis had her own encounter on february 7th she was outside in the backyard when a ufo showed itself frightened she started to race back to the house Ed was able to capture a photo of Frances just as she made it into the back doors with what appears to be a blue beam landing right beside her. And no one really talks about this picture a lot. I think it's one of the more uh, intriguing pictures. I did find it online. There's a lot of pictures in the book. You'll find most of them online, not all of them, but most of them, and the books are out of print, but you find them, you can probably get a pretty good deal on them, but uh, this picture I found online, like I said, I will post it so everyone can see it. There is this kind of weird blue beam right beside her. And uh, it's either an, a blue beam from an alien craft or a camera strap. I don't know. It would have been nice to... Maybe I should dig up... I need to dig up a picture of what Polaroid camera he was using at the time to see if, like, the camera strap could even have gotten into the frame, could have gotten into the viewfinder. But we'll have to see. Uh, I'll get back to you on that one. After that encounter, Ed was given a special camera by MUFON. The camera was called the uh, Nimslow 3D Camera, and it was pretty much tamper-proof. It had four lenses, which were glued into the body of the camera. It took four shots at the same time. This way, there were four original negatives to work from instead of one. So they could keep one, and they could send the other three off to whatever labs they wanted to, have analysis and everyone gets a little piece of it. The camera was sealed to prevent tampering. There was even a control shot already on the film to prevent the camera being reloaded with new film. So I, I'm not sure like, what that meant. Um, in the book, he talks about how like, if, if someone did try to put other film in at the, the holes in the film wouldn't match up. But to me, it just seems like a thing where If they opened that camera up and they were like, hey, the control picture's not on this film, that means someone put different film in here. That could be a, a nice little deterrent as well. This put a little pressure on Ed to get pictures with the camera. On one hand, it would prove his case. On the other, what if the aliens had decided to stop showing up? Ed had gone on this whole time, wishing the UFOs to be gone. But now, he needed them to stick around. He would get his chance on February 26th. Many residents of Gulf Breeze had started going to a park near Santa Rosa Sound. And I'm not sure which park it is. Like If you look up Santa Rosa Sound, it's just all little parks and places like that. So it's somewhere around there, somewhere on the beach. Uh, but they were going there to try and capture their own UFO photos. And so of course, Ed and Francis decided to go check it out themselves that night in the secluded part of the park around 9pm Frances herself spotted multiple craft flying through the air and Ed took his MUFON camera and just started snapping picture after picture and those pictures aren't like as great as the other ones but they are there there are some strange lights in the sky uh it looks to be like two craft hovering through the air and uh they I mean they were taken with the special tamper proof camera. The camera would later be sent to Mufon to be opened and had the f- had the film developed on camera. So like uh, like an independent body like Ed gave it to Mufon and Mufon opened it and they videotaped the whole process. So there could be you know no and they had all this evidence that nothing was tampered with with this film. After Ed handed off the 3D camera to Mufon he bought a new Polaroid 600 camera. This was a much more modern camera that spit out the picture that developed before your eyes. And thus, it was much harder to fake pictures with. So it's like I said before, the old ones, I think you could do like double exposure with them if you were very careful with the film. Like you could you could peel that thing back and do it and then put in your camera, take a picture. But this one, like all of the chemicals are within the film and it pops it right out as soon as you press the trigger. So faking them is very hard, and by this point, Ed just wanted to make sure that he had the best tools that he could get a hold of to uh, to just to be able to discredit anyone that said that these pictures were faked. After the purchase, he got some interesting advice from famed physicist and UFO photo examiner Dr. Bruce McAbee. We'll probably talk about a lot more, like I said, in the next episode. Maccabee had instructed Ed on how to build what he called a stereo camera, which we'll call the SRS from here on out. That's what Ed called it. I'm not sure what the R is for or what the other S is for, really. But it essentially was, he took Ed's new 600 Polaroid and another 600 that he borrowed from Dwayne Cook. He mounted them on a, on a plank of wood at different angles and then attached, attached that to a tripod. He then told Ed to set up a series of poles at ten-foot intervals away from the camera to help with distance and scale. By March, UFO spotting had become all the rage at the park. It had even become like a nightly occurrence with uh, Ed and Francis, they would go out there almost every night and try to grab some pictures. While walking through the park one night, Ed was called out by name by a group of UFO hunters. He had been recognized with his camera and all by a man he knew named Dick Smith. Dick called him over to the group to say hi. Ed could not put his finger on it, but there was something in Dick's voice that told Ed that he knew he was Mr. X. Even though nobody said it outright, Ed felt he had just been outed as the man who had started all of this. The next day, Ed got a phone call to his home, that further cemented the fact that people had found out his secret identity. He got a call from a woman saying her name was Jane, and we always he always assumed, and I think everyone always assumes that that was not her real name. Jane had taken pictures of UFOs in Shoreline Park in the middle of Gulf Breeze in 1986. So this is like a small community park in the center of town. It's not the big sprawling park that is over by the beach. She had never said anything to her friends and family. She had just hidden the pictures away. The two talked about her encounter, and she agreed to send Ed some of her photos. And I think the last picture, the last couple of pictures in the Gulf Breeze Sightings book are Jane's pictures. And her pictures, they have very similar craft to what Ed had been seeing. Ed and Frances had made several visits to the park at the same spot, set up the stereo camera and they tried to get photos with it but they didn't have much luck on may 1st francis had left to chaperone a band trip and she would be gone for the next four days that night ed kept fighting the urge to go and set up the srs camera by himself it finally got the better of him and so at 11 p.m he went out to santa rosa sound and set it all up alone in his usual spot. There was a light drizzle that night, and he ended up taking a break in his van at around 12.30. Something must have broken in him that moment, and he was ready for it all to be over. He walked back to the picnic shelter where the SRS was set up and just started calling them out, saying things like, Here he is, and It's Zeos, Come and get me. Let's get this over with. Then, 1.10, they came. Two ships appeared before him. He was able to get a shot with the SRS before a flash of brilliant white light engulfed him. He woke up on the beach. The time was 2.25. He had an hour and 15 minutes of missing time. Ed had no memory of what had been done to him. He went home in a shattered emotional state, and with Francis gone, he didn't have anyone to talk to about it. He ended up calling Dr. Maccabee and telling him about the situation. Ed had not come back unscathed, however. One of his hands reeked of a foul odor. He could only calm the smell by wrapping his hand in a towel. He later found that the smell was coming from a black substance under his fingernails, which I think they also had analyzed, and uh, if I dig up any more on that, we'll talk about that as well next episode. He also had several bruises with red dots uh, like all over his face, especially one right between his eyes. That was the last sighting. All in all, Ed had 20 encounters with the UFOs and took a total of 38 photographs. It's not, however, the end of the story. And that will do it for the kind of basics of the story, kind of from beginning to end. Like I said, next episode, we'll get into some more hypothesis and some more uh, science stuff and things like that. But right now, it's intermission time. We're going to play some music, and we're going to come back with your local headlines.
2: I'm <laughs> sorry.
0: Welcome back. And
3: we have, like we always do, a couple of local headlines. This first one is from... Hold on a second. The uh, Macomb Daily by Don Gardner. And the headline reads, County Receiver Reports of Crocodile in Clinton River in Harrison Township. Uh, This is up in Michigan, if anyone is wondering. Does Macomb County have its own version of a Loch Ness Monster or the creature from the Black Lagoon? McCombe County Animal Control has received three reports of what appears to be either a crocodile or a caiman playing in the waters of the Clinton River in Harrison Township. Chief Jeff Randazzo of Animal Control said his department first received a call about the creature a couple of weeks ago, then it received a second call, and a third call came in Monday about about 4 p.m. in the afternoon. The unidentified creature had been reported in the area of the North River Road at Bridgeview Street, the area south of Selfridge Air National Guard Base, and the bridge connects North River Road to South River Road. We went out there four times a day and haven't seen anything, Randazzo said. Based upon information Animal Control has received, Randazzo said it's possible the reports are accurate, but he was unable to confirm or validate the sightings. Rendazzo said that the two that two of the callers said the creature was a crocodile, and the third said it was a caiman. Eyewitnesses said the animal was about three feet long. Both animals are cold-blooded and non-native to Michigan. No shit. As Rendazzo said, the animals would need to bask in the sun to warm up and be active. He said his staff had gone up and down the river in that vicinity and hadn't seen anything. That area of the river is heavily populated with homes, and Rendazzo said. It was difficult to inspect all of the Clinton Road Riverbanks in the area without trespassing on private property. Randazzo said his department has also been monitoring Harrison Township neighborhood Facebook pages to gather more information and ask residents for any help finding the animal. He said if the animal does exist, it won't survive for much longer in Michigan's colder climate. It's an environment where it's set up to fail, Randazzo said. It won't live through the Michigan winter. Nazo said, "If the animal does exist, it was probably dumped in the river by an exotic pet owner who didn't want it or couldn't handle it anymore." He said it's just another example of why the purchase of exotic pets should be prohibited or at least limited. We're very intrigued by it, obviously. If it's confirmed that we have a problem, he said, that is a great opportunity for municipalities, states to develop stronger laws about not selling exotics. They're too easy to get. You can buy them in person or online. And that is it for that one. The next one is uh, from... This is from the DH News the Durango Herald. It is by Jonathan Romeo, and it reads, Mystery of Buried Vehicle, Missing Driver Intensifies North of Pagosa Springs. Authorities have seemingly reached a dead end into an investigation of an abandoned car that was found buried under a massive pile of debris in a remote, mountainous area outside of Pagosa Springs with its owner missing. He's nowhere to be found, said Mineral County Sheriff Fred Husukas. It's kind of weird. On August 13th, a passerby spotted a part of a silver 2014 Toyota Camry with New Mexico plates sticking out through a massive debris pile. Located up West Fork Road, or Service Road 648, about 15 miles north of Pagosa Springs. The area in question is located in Mineral County, right before US Highway 160 starts to climb into Wolf Creek Pass. After the car was reported to law enforcement, investigators determined it belonged to Gabriel Max Baldondo of Albuquerque, who is in his early 40s. But in the days since, authorities have been unable to locate Valdando or piece together what may have happened. A host at a nearby campground said the car couldn't have been there for more than 10 days, but neighbors had reported nothing unusual or out of the ordinary. Nothing was found inside the car to help determine what might have happened, other than a mask, which leads authorities to believe that the car was left there at least after the COVID-19 pandemic. I should say after the COVID-19 pandemic started. The vehicle was in good working order. The debris used to bury the car had been there for three years, Postal said as a U.S. Forest Service slash pile. Because of the way the woods and logs were stacked, he believes the intent was to set the pile on fire. It just seemed to be like they were building a great big bonfire, he said. More recently, search crews with human remains detection dogs combed the area, which turned up nothing. They did a pretty good search, Holselkaus said. They are pretty good dogs. They'll find something if it's there. Adding to the mystery, Holselkaus said a pentagram five-pointed symbol, often associated with myth- mythical or occult meanings, was found 300 feet from the car. The pentagram was made out of sticks. It's hard to say how long it's been there, he said, but it was weird when we found that. The Mineral County Sheriff's Office worked with investigators in New Mexico to help de- to help track down credit card or bank activity, which again, turned up not a trace. There was no recent activity on anything, Oselka said. Baldondo is not known to have a cell phone, Husslekluss also said. Investigators locate Baldondo's family, but to make matters more complicated, Baldondo had become estranged from his family and hadn't spoken to them in years. Angela Atwood, Baldondo's sister, said in an interview Monday with the Durango Herald that Baldondo's wife of about 15 years suddenly died in 2017, and that was their turning point for her brother. That made Gabriel spiral, she said. Baladondo and his family moved to New Mexico a few years ago after his wife Carol finished nursing school. After she died, Baladondo and his three children went to stay with Atwood in the Seattle area. He just wasn't in a good place mentally to raise his kids, so they moved in with me, she said. He went back down to New Mexico to sort himself out, and then we never heard from him after that. Atwood said her brother is quiet and introverted, never got caught up with the wrong crowd she too is at a loss as to why he went missing i just don't understand the car she said it's not a super he's not a super strong person i don't know how he had buried it like that that's not gabriel postal cuss said it appears he had no connection to the Pagosa springs area there are no planned future searches of that area foul play is not suspected authorities in new mexico will keep an eye on credit card and bank activity i don't know what else to do he said the location in question has been a problem area for missing people, Hostelco said. In September 2017, Matthew Johnson of Rico called 911 to say he was lost. His car was found parked in an overlook on the west side of Wolf Creek Pass, and a robust search effort turned up nothing. He remains missing to this day. And a year or so before, Hostelco said a truck that went off of Wolf Creek Pass near the same overlook. Resulted in the death of the driver, but authorities have no reason to believe there was a passenger who was never located. Maybe if we find one, we'll find them all. Hoselkus said, "That is, I think that's going to be. Uh, we might keep an eye on that one. That is going to be a mystery. That's going to be like some missing 401 here, probably next time that comes around. And our last one is from the Birmingham Mail. Co. Uk. Birmingham Live. So this is from England." The headline reads: "Pictured, terrifying clown tormenting Kingsmanford neighborhood." And this is by Charlotte Regan. A Black County street has been gripped by the fears of a clown after a residents claim they are being terrorized by a bare-chested motorist in full circus makeup. And police have been contacted by householders who say bozo is in danger of making Cloverdale Crescent, Kingsmanford, a no-go area. According to residents. Officers are tracing the footsteps of the rogue big-top entertainer. The bizarre spat of clown encounters is no laughing matter, say locals. They describe the confrontations as sinister. They have CCTV footage. On Thursday, the individual approached a young couple delivering leaflets. At first, they thought he was on his way to a children's party. Then, the red-nosed individual stared out and that's in quotation marks, the 19-year-old woman before golfing in her face. Her companion told Black County Live he laughed like a clown. The 20 year old added, He stared at my girlfriend for a minute or so and then started to laugh like a clown. At first I just thought he was on his way to a children's party or something. I didn't see him that clearly. We tried to ignore him and carried on doing the leaflets. We tried to pay no attention to him, as if he, to see if he would stop. But as we got closer, he got in his car and opened his passenger door and asked me if I was someone he knew. When I said no, he started laughing more. It was a scary experience for both of us. I went out last night and spent half the time looking over my shoulder. The victim was provided a de- has provided a detailed description. He added he was about 5 feet 8 inches tall. He was wearing clown face paint, false clown teeth, no top on, and a black cap and joggers. He was laughing like a clown and had, a kn- and had knife scars on his belly. At 4 p.m. on the same day, a paperboy in nearby Water Street was so shocked he cycled into a nearby park to escape. His mother posted on the community forum, "My son phoned me to say that what had happened and kept the call going. As he approached Cloverdale, my son was hysterical. The clown stopped by him again. Myself and his dad ran after him, but he had gone he was gone by the time we got there. Police have been informed." Another householder posted he was wearing false teeth or something like that in his mouth. Scary. A spokeswoman for West Midlands Police confirmed complaints had been received, but, as of yet, there is no reason to believe a crime had been committed. A rogue clown on the streets may be no laughing matter, but it's not an offense. She added, We received calls on Thursday about a man driving in the Kingmanford area, either wearing a clown mask or with his face painted and allegedly intimidating pedestrians. So that is, the clowns are back, everyone, for 2020. Uh, you can go and check this out. There is a really bad uh, CCTV photo of uh, a fat guy with no shirt on wearing clown makeup who appears to be driving a Mini Cooper. So be on the lookout for clowns again. And that will do it for this week's local headlines. Uh, we're going to do a boom real quick. and want to come back with your small town secret. Right, and tonight we have the fourth and final installment of Cosmic Ray's uh, stories about, well, all of that Desert Center stuff and Blythe stuff. Uh, When we last left our intrepid reporter, they had just, they were going to have this kind of meeting about this get together, this town get together about these UFOs, Uh, but it kind of got sidelined at the last second, and they, they were able to reschedule it at like a nearby ranch or something. So that's where the story picks up. Uh, Mr. Rogers in the neighborhood Flying Saucer meeting. This, this section begins. After the short delay to allow for the stragglers to arrive at the ranch house meeting on Flying Saucers, it was the local Blythe High School science teacher, George Wixom, who called the meeting to order and introduced that night's speaker, the editor of the San Diego, California news magazine, Talk of the Times, F.E. Rogers. Before this gentleman started his lecture, however, he distributed a four-page photo offset program, announcing that he, Rogers, would would be presenting a tape-recorded interview with the Southern California aircraft plant worker Orfo Matthew Angelucci concerning his 35-minute flight in a flying saucer taken right there in the Golden State. One of the inside pages displayed the opening photograph of this article depicting a tiny man in a shiny, skin-tight, silvery suit of the strange clothing worn by this entity. And there is a picture in his uh, his article here, and this will be on this will be on the show notes in a PDF form, so you can just get all of it, and you'll be able to see this picture. It's quite an intriguing picture. Rogers wrote that he was dressed in a mixture of metals wound tightly around his body to help withstand the Earth's atmospheric pressure. We, of course, do not have any such material on this planet. According to Rogers' pamphlet, this being being was supposedly an alien whom Mexican federal police authorities had saved from a flying saucer crash that took place on the outskirts of Mexico City just a few months previously in the spring of 1955. Rogers, a white-haired older gentleman, fiddled with the details on his tape recording device. He then adjusted his green eye shade and cleared his throat. "'You people out there should be very interested in flying saucers,' he began, speaking in a thin, quivering voice, continuing, "'Of course the saucer people have shown great interest in your part of the country.'" The owner of the Blythe Music Shop, Leonard Allem, was skeptical from the get-go. "'Just a moment,' he interrupted. "'What about this picture of the spaceman? Where did you get it?' The San Diego editor replied, "'Someone in the know sent it to me.'" "'Who?' the Incarn Alman demanded." I'm a newspaper man, sir, Rogers reported, so you understand that I have to protect my sources. Local resident Robin Hill, however, wanted to know more about the space dude. Just how do you know, sir, that we do not have any metal like it? I'm sorry that I am not authorized to answer that question, sir. If I were to do so, I might inadvertently supply a clue as to the classified source. Understood, noted Hill. Astounding lecture. Many other locals started to raise their hands with yet more questions. The science teacher came to the rescue, however, declaring that perhaps Mr. Rogers should get on with the recording, but there will be a question period later on. Rogers affirmed that the tape all we're about to hear was backed up by the facts. He pointed out that while Adamski's story was well-written, it wasn't scientifically documented like Angelucci's was. Orfo Matthew Angelucci was a Lockheed Aviation worker from Los Angeles and had at least some idea of the technical aspects of certain contemporary aircraft. He had a weighted opinion about the power and maneuvering characteristics of these flying saucers that largely remained enigmatic to the public at large. Rogers then flicked on the switch of his tape recorder, and for the next hour, the people of Southern California's saucer country enjoyed the opportunity of listening to Angelucci's expert testimony concerning flying saucers and his ideas of where they came from. The tape reel began to run. On May 23, 1952, declared Angelucci in his recorded testimony, a hazy, burgundy-colored glow led me through a heavy Los Angeles traffic to a desolate spot outside the city where the glow was suddenly transformed into a green disc, only two and a half feet in diameter. The aircraft worker believed that the small disc was remote control, some kind of probe. I got the message. From the disk, he said. He stated, adding that they, the intelligence behind the fine saucers, somehow informed me through the disk by mental telepathy that they would return to me on an urgent matter. Orifo M. Angelucci, 1912 to 1993, was a frequent presenter at the Giant Rock Interplanetary Spacecraft Convention Convention, held at Landersfield, California, about 17 miles north of the Yucca Valley, from the mid-50s to the late 70s. Angelucci claims to have contacted ethereal beings from the Confederation of Planets that took on the appearance of normal humans when operating on Earth. Orfeo rides in a flying saucer. As the tape recorder continued the play, the assembled Californians heard Orfeo's Angelucci's astounding account of his 35-minute ride aboard a flying saucer on the 27th of May, 1952. Just four days after his initial encounter with the drone, the aircraft mechanic said that the space people looked just like us in most outwardly visible aspects. They related to him how scientists in the Soviet Union were in the process of developing a more lethal type of atomic bomb, and when they achieved this objective, they would launch a first strike against the United States. He further declared that the Venusians and beings from other other member worlds in the Confederation of Planets were even then working behind the scenes in both the Iron Curtain and the United States to put a stop to this perilous trend, thereby averting World War III. According to his contactee, the extraterrestrials were also urging Americans to stop the efforts of concerned scientists to stop the proliferation of atomic weapons, and yet more powerful rockets to deliver to these devices and to write their elected representatives in Washington, D.C., clearly expressing their concerns on these critical matters. They also gave Angelucci revelatory verses from the Old Testament book of Isaiah to back up their words of warning. Myriad of questions, few answers. After the presentation, the MC opened the floor for questions and almost every hand went up. Here were some of the questions asked of Rogers. Who has heard this tape before? Has the Air Force shown any interest in this tape? Have recognized scientific authorities listened to this tape? Such questions continued to bombard Rogers' ears for the next two hours. For most of the questions, all the presenter could say is that he was not at liberty to answer them at this time. Also, since Orifo Angelucci could not be present at the meeting due to his personal engagements and to speak for himself, Rogers hesitated to put words in his mouth. The San Diego editor concluded the Q&A session with some harsh words. I didn't come out here from San Diego to be tricked, he shouted, these are the facts. You can take them or leave them. These remarks did not go over well at the crowded ranch house. One gentleman in the assembly identified himself as Robert Dyer. He was soft-spoken, horn rim college type, and began to address Rogers in a steady voice. You're insulting our intelligence, sir. Most of us out here have a hunch that the saucers are real. Otherwise, we wouldn't have come here tonight. But statements about saucers, like statements about everything else, have to be backed up by some kind of proof. We're not going to. We're not trying to trick you, and we're not saying that Angelucci is a crackpot. But we do not take anyone's word, including from government representatives, unless it's backed up by facts. There was an enthusiastic round of applause, and the meeting broke up noisily. Blue Book magazine correspondent Paul C. Bernard went back to his motel to get some rest before departing Blythe the next morning. Of his experiences in the Colorado Desert areas of Southern California, the journalist noted that I took two things along a notebook bulging with names and dates, personal opinions, and a hastily scribbled impressions, and a renewed aspect for the down-to-earth reasoning of the average American. And I want to mention that Ray has a, uh, a couple of books out uh, that I think you can get on Amazon. I will link it all to the show notes. He mentions here in his in his uh, second book, The Venus Rising, of the Venus Rising series, Final Countdown, Ruckus to Venus. Venus, can't say Venus tonight for some reason. He has a lot of uh, the FBI files on George Adamski. He's got a lot of the Flying Saucer Club meetings and just a whole bunch of stuff. So I will link to his books in the show notes so that you can pick them up and uh, further read on about this if you want. But I would like once again to thank Cosmic Ray here for really, what, four parts? So the last four episodes, he has been able to uh, share with us a massive a Small Town Secret. So thank you once again, Cosmic Ray. And uh, check out his books. All I can I will leave a link most definitely for that. But I think that's going to wrap it up on everything for tonight. So we're at the end of another episode, and I would like to thank everyone for listening and continuing to listen. Uh, if you yourself have a Small Town Secret to share, a UFO report, a Bigfoot sighting, uh, some local folklore, some... Lo- weird history, some true crime stuff, anything really, then you can get it to me in many, many ways. Uh, First, the best way to do it is to go to stscast.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page, the main page there. There is a email form that you can send me your experience with. Uh, While you're there, check out all the show notes, sources, pictures, that's all in there, Uh, ways you can support the show, with merch and Patreon and all of that good stuff. Uh, And then more links. Uh, Social media is on there. Uh, You can also use social media to get me your experiences if you would like. I am most active on Twitter. That is at STSCast. Uh, Facebook is also at STSCast. And Instagram is at STSCast.gram. Let's see what else. Oh, I haven't said this in a while, but please, if you get a chance, please rate and review the show on your pod catcher of choice, uh, especially if it's iTunes. That's the big one, like I said. And if you can, just tell a friend. I say this almost every episode that if everyone out there can get one more person to listen to the show, then the audience automatically doubles. Uh, so once again, thanks for listening. I will catch everyone uh, in a couple of weeks. Unless you're a Patreon, then I will catch you next weekend for STS Backroads. Uh, but remember... Every town has a secret, what is yours?